0: Thanks to you our listeners, KRBN Internet News Talk Radio is growing and is now available on more stations such as Facebook Video, Player.fm, iTunes, Verbal, and now on Amazon Audible. KRBN Internet News Talk Radio currently does not receive any funding to bring you these programs. However, we do ask that you hit that like button and tell your friends to help this station grow, and thank you again for your support. Good afternoon, and welcome to another edition of the Bo's Nose Show, and I'm your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich, and we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, where it's probably one of the warmest days we've had so far this year. Um, yeah, can you believe that? But, you know, the weather is a fickle thing here in Oregon, and we just can't Quite seem to get summer going. Yeah, you know, we had we had summer 1.0 last week, and then over the weekend we had winter, you know, 5.0 <laughs> or so. And 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 uh, we have a little bit of summer this week, 6.0 or 5.1. I don't know what it was. You know, and now we're you know get we're probably going to go back to winter again this weekend with more rain. But the rain's a good thing because it keeps the fire danger down, and our reservoirs are all. all full and actually losing some of our uh, wouldn't you know it. <laughs> so no sooner than the program starts than my lawn service decides it's going to run the uh, leaf blower right outside my window. Jay, I think we're cursed. We are cursed. We actually have everything technically working today, but he seems to be moving quickly, so hopefully that will go away. Maybe. <laughs> uh, yeah, so for folks that aren't regulars in the Bo's Nose Show, we've had some technical, <laughs> some technical issues over the last couple of weeks, and we finally think we got all the technical issues worked out. You know. Our Facebook live video has actually got my mouse synced with the sound now, more or less, and little things like that. And, but wouldn't you know it, uh, because it's Monday was a holiday, my hard surface decided they were going to come a day early, which I didn't realize was going to be during the Bose Nose Show. Um, hopefully they will move away from my windows here shortly and it won't be quite as noisy. but We got all sorts of things to talk about this week. We actually, you know, just like the tech pro problems have been worked out, we have some other good news we'll talk about because, you know, people kind of get on me that I spend a lot of my Bose Nose shows lately just kind of doom and gloom. So I I purposely tried to think of what good things are going on, you know, around Oregon. But then I've got to do some it's not necessarily bad news. Talk about some good programs, some good government work that's going on, but the future of it is in jeopardy, which means that we still have time to make sure it doesn't have problems, which is why I want to talk about it. So it's not necessarily bad news, just kind of a warning and a premonition about, so actual good work government does that you might be able to help influence it continuing, and maybe even getting better. So that is just kind of a, a lead into the Bo's Nose Show, but I will remind folks that we are a call-in show. And all you have to do is dial 646-721-9887. And don't forget to press one, because that raises your hand on our board. And if you press it again, it toggles it off. So it's kind of you know one of those, just like when you're in the Zoom meetings, Pressing one is how you raise your hand, and uh, that lets Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire, know you want to get in on the show. And you can ask me a question. You can bring up a topic you want to talk about. You know, that that's the best part of the show is when I get somebody, you know, that calls in and, and wants to have a conversation. It's kind of why I do this show. So, um, I want to talk a little bit about some maybe some good news you know and i facetiously pointed out that the board didn't meet this week because the memorial day holiday and uh that means at least you're safe for another week from any new county laws <laughs> we all know we're safer when the legislation legislature is not in session um you know same thing when the board of commissioners doesn't meet you know nothing bad's gonna happen at least Although good things happen during our meetings too um, and last week, I talked a little bit about the problems that the uh, world athletic games might cause Lane County uh, for the campus we have directly across from Oxton Stadium, where we have our youth detention facilities, um, we have our behavioral health facilities, we have our developmental disabilities service building. Uh, we have the MLK Commons where we house some really vulnerable people that you know we've gotten off the streets. Um, and there's an issue where they might be denying access to that campus for us. And for us to even have partial access, they wanted us to spend $300,000 for a temporary gravel road that wouldn't even be available 24-7 to us. Well the city of Eugene and the Oregon 22 people kind of saw the light when the board said, hey, we're not paying for that road. If you want to close Martin Luther King Boulevard, you guys pay for the road. Um, Suddenly they changed the permit requirements to where they're gonna keep a a lane in each direction open to our campus 24 seven during the World Games. So that was a piece of good news for us because they were not wasting $300,000 dollars on a road that's only going to be used for two weeks. That's kind of pointless in the first place. And it makes sure we can keep our clients safe and, and served during the World games. You know, and that campus serves a lot of really vulnerable people, from you know our juveniles that are involved in the criminal justice system, to these uh, folks at MLK Commons that were previously chronically homeless and high utilizers of emergency services so you can imagine that they still require a certain amount of emergency services because um, that's why we have them in that facility we're trying to you know help them manage their issues and get them under control so they can move to more permanent you know less intensive, uh, housing situations. So that was good news that, you know, that got worked out. Um, and, you know, I have to mention that this last Sunday, um, my wife Elizabeth and I celebrated our 40th wedding anniversary. That's good news. You know, uh, it's, it's a milestone not a lot of people get to in, in this world of of modern divorce and all that um so i'm pretty proud of that in fact it's probably you know people interview me and they ask me what's the biggest accomplishment you know i always point to my marriage and uh so pretty happy about 40 years gosh and i you know (laughs) thank you robin (laughs) and uh you know At the same time, I've been going back and trying to sort through some old boxes of, of, you know, correspondence and whatever. And in some of those boxes have been photos. And I found a bunch of photos that were from the summer Elizabeth and I met. So that was 42 years ago. And, man, are we young. (laughs) That's all I got to say. Yeah. I still had (laughs) zits. It's weird looking at pictures of yourself that are that old. Uh, But fun in some ways, too. Brought back a lot of memories. So on a more serious side, though, I do want to talk about referred to as the community corrections system in Oregon. And it's something a lot of people probably have no idea about and how it's Structured, how it functions, um, who pays for it, who does it, you know, who it serves. It's kind of a very quiet thing that goes on that most people aren't aware of, except for they kind of understand one, you know, one piece of it. They've probably heard of parole. You know, when somebody's released from prison, they usually spend a certain amount of time on parole. Where they're under supervision of a parole officer and if they violate the conditions of their parole they go back to prison to serve the remainder of their term they're usually out on some kind of early release and that's why there's a parole board in the state well those parole officers which also serve as probationary officers which are the people that are um pre-trial diverted from being sentenced and are on probation to where if they don't obey the conditions of probation, then get sentenced for the crime that they committed and end up going to prison. (laughs) So it's a front end versus rear end of it. But our parole and probation officers work for Lane County. And that system was set up uh, and, and revised under a bill pretty old bill called Senate Bill 1145. And I'm trying to remember which session of the legislature they, they passed at um, 1995. So it's been a while since the system was quote modernized then. I mean, it was, it was, and what happened at that time is the counties became the people that run parole and probation and have the parole and probation officers. But the state supplied the funding and they call that community correction that, that Senate Bill 1145 is referred to the community as the Community Corrections Act and they fund that annually. Or not annually, they felt it bi- biannually in the state budget. Now, the idea was there would be this, you know, running tally of the number of people that were under the supervision of the counties and qualify in that population served by the Community Corrections Act, the state would kind of keep track of how much it costs per day to supervise somebody under that's part of that population and fund that amount to the counties. And every biennium that would kind of get reset as the cost changes or the population changed. Well, And then once every six years, they were supposed to do a major study of, and they call it, they refer to it as the time study, that would delve into deeply how much it really costs to supervise somebody. And that time study would be utilized supposedly to reset every six years to a major reset rather than the every two years, maybe minor adjustments. But every six years, a major reset to the funding for that system. Well, the problem in 1145 was it required the study every six years, but it didn't require the legislature to fund it. So we have slowly gotten behind the time study uh, dollar amounts, and the system's been consistently sort of underfunded. So because of that, um, some of the counties that have, you know, More robust tax rates, like Multnomah County, use a lot of general fund to supplement their Community Corrections Act funding to to keep the caseloads down for their parole officers. Counties like Josephine and, and Lane County that don't have high tax rates, you know, have to depend almost solely on Community Corrections Act funding for our parole and probation officers. Which, by the way, that funding also funds um, jail beds for sanctioning, because one of the things they try and do before they send somebody back to prison is maybe they'll make them spend a weekend in jail. Or maybe 10 days in jail or 30 days in jail. Um, those beds have to be available so, and they have to be paid for. So some of this money goes to the sheriff's office. Some of it comes to our parole and probation. Some of it goes to a lot, uh, several local nonprofits, because we also pay for treatment services and diversion services, like um, the local nonprofit known as Sponsors, Inc., which does post-prison uh, reentry services and helps people come back into society in a way where they don't commit crimes again and function Um they get money out of this Community Corrections Act funding. But it's the piece where we try and get people who end up in prison, usually quite often, you know, for various reasons, but quite often for drug and alcohol problems that led to property crime and even person crimes, after they've served their time, you know, successfully serve their time in the prison system and they're released back into society helps them reintegrate or those that maybe are accused of lesser crimes and lower risk that are sentenced to probation by the courts to try and be successful in turning their lives around and not recommitting crimes. And we actually have a pretty good success rate and particularly with some specialized programs uh, that are part of that are partially funded with Community Corrections Act funding. And then there's another secondary source of funding that was established in 2013 called Justice Reinvestment, where the, the intention was to fund innovative programs that would reduce prison utilization so the state wouldn't have to build any new prisons, saving about $600 million in new prison construction costs. So they were gonna take that savings and dump it into those programs, and it was supposed to be 60 million a year for 10 years for the 600 million right never fully funded (laughs) so community corrections act never fully funded to the time studies justice reinvestment never fully the investment was never fully made even though it's been pretty successful we are way below the prison populations that are going to require new prisons to be built in this state we've been successful the counties have been successful in preventing people being sentenced to prison and have reduced the number of, we refer to it as prison months being utilized. So we have this system now that has been successful in reducing prison usage, has has some success in certain programs and we've, we've tested this success with randomized control testing. You know, the most rigorous form of analyzing programs you can utilize where you have basically people that are part of a control group that's not getting any of the program, the programming, and people that are, and you compare the two cohorts and you randomize who's in the control group and who gets the treatment (laughs) so that, you know, there's, you know, it takes away a lot of variables. And we've shown that some of these programs are, you know, 90% effective compared to not treating people, you know, it's just pretty amazing work that we're doing in helping people turn around in their lives and in the long run save the state and society a lot of money. But the biggest thing they do is they save human capital. You know, if we take a person that had ended up in prison due to drug and alcohol, mental health issues, who knows what, they commit crimes enough, big enough crimes, they end up in the prison system. They come out, we take them through, you know, with, the, you know, parole officers and the help of sponsors and other uh, nonprofits successfully transition them back into society where they don't commit a new crime and they become functional in society. What is the value of that person's renewed life? And, and, you know, how much less is that person going to cost society that if they come out without that supervision, without the help of sponsors and nonprofits, you know, without, you know, helping that reintegration, and they just commit, they get back into their addiction or mental health issues. You know, they don't take their, their medications, don't deal with whatever, you know, cognitive issues that led them to criminogenic behavior in the first place and they end up back in prison, and they're you know are in and out of prison, in and out of prison. What does that cost us, and how much productive life do we waste? We are totally on the hook for that person as, as the taxpayers while they're in prison and in our criminal justice system. They're doing nothing but draining resources from our society. But if we take them and, and help them reintegrate successfully, they're actually adding. And then there's that person that's been made whole. And who knows how that impacts everything from their children and, and family members to all sorts of other people. So when you think about our parole and probation and community corrections and these systems, it's a really important system and it's a success story that success story is also our treatment court system because that's part of how we one of the it's been RCT tested it is bang on a great way to change lives where we take people that are veterans or have addiction issues like drug court and we sentence them to treatment that if they're successful their charges get dropped if they're unsuccessful they end up getting you know, sent to prison. Pretty big stick, kind of hole on people, um, and it's had an amazing success rate, and long-term recidivism numbers are, are doing well with those programs. They're partially funded with justice reinvestment money. They're partially funded through the courts. Little pieces put together here and there, they're, but they're always seem to be teetering on the edge, stability because. The legislature hasn't fully committed to funding treatment courts in any major way. They're slapped together from grants and all sorts of pieces. And a grant goes away from the federal government; we got to make up for it locally somehow or another. Um, you know, it just it's always seems to be we're juggling. And part of the treatment courts is it's a team situation where there is a prosecutor from the DA's office involved. There's a public defender involved. There's a parole officer involved. The court has a judge involved. And all these people work as a team to manage caseloads of these folks that qualify to go into treatment courts. And um, that's part of why they're successful, because they work as a team. Well, that means You have to have public defenders and DAs available for these treatment courts, which is part of where the funding issues come from. And some other crises are are stirring up. So let me back up about two years to COVID comes around. And we shut down most of Oregon. And one of the things that gets shut down is our court system because we can't meet in person. We're still doing some virtual courtroom work, but it is absolutely bogging down our court system. So the public defenders, you know, doing what they should do for their clients, understand the courts are swamped and overwhelmed and start requesting extensions on trials and getting them granted pretty willy-nilly because it's useful to the courts to extend some of these trial dates out because they are having trouble doing any court work at all you know, during COVID, which leads to a backlog of cases being adjudicated and moved on, which leads to high case counts for public defenders. If you're postponing a bunch of cases, Suddenly you've got huge, and also for the prosecutors, the DA staff, the assistant DA's caseloads are growing too. Well, you know, public defenders aren't the highest paid attorneys in the state, so it's a difficult place to recruit into in the first place. And if you're recruiting into where you've got a overwhelming caseload, not many people want those jobs, which is then exacerbating the caseload issues. And I don't know if you've Watch TV over the last couple months, but a couple times there have been news stories about the crisis in public defenders now. There are cases and charges being dropped because there's no public offender that has the ability to be assigned to that case within a reasonable time amount. And you get into you know constitutional issues about speedy trial, etc., and providing defense and, and legal advice to those charged with a crime. That all has led to a reduction in the population of people that have been moved through the courts, sentenced to probation or sentenced to prison, and then coming out of prison on parole. So the supervision, people under supervision in the state of Oregon has been gradually falling for the last two and a half years. Our population here in Lane County has been gradually falling. And if you remember, I talked about, you know, there's this the, the formula they fund community corrections on is based on a per person under supervision on some daily capitated rate as they refer to it. So if you have less people under supervision, we can expect less money from the legislature. And we've also noted that the legislature is not keeping up with the real cost of supervision, so that daily rate really doesn't even pay the bills. Now, mind you, because that daily rate doesn't really pay the bills, here in Lane County, because we don't have a lot of extra money laying around like Multnomah County does, our caseloads for our parole officers are the highest in the state. So we, you know, just like the public defenders, we're overloading our parole officers. So a reduction in that total number of people under supervision by our parole department does not necessarily equate to a reduction in the number of parole officers we need because they were really trying to supervise too many people to start with. All it's doing is bringing their caseloads down close to What's considered normal, which is about 70 cases at any one time for parole officers, our guys are running in the 90s, considered optimal. Can you imagine trying to keep track of 50 people on a daily basis? Try 70, try 80, 90. And particularly because Lane County population under supervision, because we have such little resources in our in our courts and other systems, we only seem to be putting high-risk people through the system, so we mostly have high-risk people on parole. They they do something. They do this this uh, evaluation of everybody as they're coming out of jail to determine their risk of reoffending, and their risk to the public as public safety wise. And it lots of different factors like you know what's their family support system look like coming out, what's their housing situation look like employment education levels uh what was their criminal history you know various things that go into this huge long questionnaire that gets filled out and that comes out with a score and you get scored low medium or high risk lane county's population is almost all high risk supervision people so not only are we overloaded with our caseload it's high risk people which are supposed to take more time to manage but the state rate per person is based on the average across the entire state. So you can kind of see how Lane County is having trouble with this system. So that gets down to what happens now in the future. Given the fact that this reduction in population doesn't mean we we have an ability to reduce staff or reduce jail beds or anything other cost here in Lane County. And all of those things are fat, increasing in cost with all the other inflation. By the way, we set a new record for gas prices in Oregon again today. Well over $5 a gallon. Yay, Oregon, one of what, seven states that's averaging over $5 a gallon? But uh, I digress. That's only to illustrate inflation's part of this equation. And in particularly labor costs, how difficult it is for us to attract people into these positions from public defenders to DAs to parole officers, jail deputies, to the people that work. Or sponsors in the nonprofit community and the treatment addiction, mental health folks that we, we subcontract with all of that's going up at incredible rates. So our cost to supervise somebody is going through the roof right now, but we're looking at the possibility in this next biennium. If you do it purely on our, population under supervision times the rate they're they're currently estimating they're going to give us on a daily basis for a person under supervision, we're going to look at a 20% cut in funding in real dollars without even considering what inflation is doing to our costs. 20% from the current biennium. And we're actually going to need somewhere in the range of 15% more than the current buy just to maintain current level of service. That's a 35% differential. Can you see the crisis coming? What does it mean if we have to start dismantling some of these programs? And what do we choose to dismantle? You know what? The... Most effective programs are our highest-costing programs. Treatment courts are expensive to run. The POs assigned to them run a lower caseload than the rest of our POs. The DA's office, you know, dedicates the DA to, to treatment courts, you know, that would normally be doing many more cases. Because they move more slowly through the court system, they require this teamwork. Lots of meetings, lots of time. It's a, a different system, but a very effective system, but it's expensive. So do we jettison that high cost system that's effective? And just, you know, do, you know, do we go back to the, the old days of uh, 20 years ago when parole officers, basically a job was to tail parolees and wait for them to step out of line and jail. Them. And it was referred to tail and jail. Didn't change people's lives. Didn't interrupt their criminogenic behavior, so they end up cycling back through the system and costing us money and wasting that human capital. But that's the direction things go back towards if we don't get the legislature to fund this. Now, you may have heard that you know they've got an extra two billion in revenue or something coming in that's why there's going to be these big kickers and they've got all sort of, it just seems like they're bleeding money all over the place the community corrections budget is about 230 million dollars out of the billions of dollars the state spends every biennium it's a small small piece What they contribute towards the DAs across the state is tiny. Most of that cost is borne by the counties. They basically, in Lane County, the only thing they pay is part of our district attorney's salary. We actually make up an additional amount just so we can have a high enough salary to attract somebody that wants to run a small law firm, which is basically what our DA's office is. Not even small, I should say medium to to large law firm, you know that normally those kind of people make you know <laughs> half million dollars a year we're We're lucky that we, you know we were able to scratch together another sixty seventy thousand a year on top of the ninety thousand that the state puts in that's all they put into our d a s office ninety thousand a year they need to come up with money there they need to better fund the Justice Department and the courts so they can afford their portion of what it takes, They, need, which includes public defenders. And it, compared to the overall state budget and the cost of our Department of Corrections prison system, although community corrections money comes through the Department of Corrections, it's dwarfed by what it costs to run the prisons. This is kind of where I'm asking you all to start talking to legislatures about this. You know, all these people talk all the time about we don't need to warehouse people in jails and all that stuff. This is not the warehousing. This is how we stop the warehousing. This is restorative justice for both the victims and the person that committed the crime. Because part of this whole programming is, you know, victim services, is a piece of this whole thing. And making sure there's restoration. That's part of the work that our parole officers work with their clients with. Besides doing things like cognitive behavioral therapy and, and, you know, trying to rethink how they problem solve. You know, if you're late for the rent, you don't go and hold up the local seven <laughs> eleven. Yeah, so yeah, it this this you know, if you're a conservative, it saves money in the long run. These programs do. It also saves human capital. If you're a liberal, this is about being passionate. It also solves some other problems. Most people that come out of prison are coming out into a homeless situation. They don't have housing. These programs quite often provide transitional housing and sometimes even permanent supportive housing for some of these people that really need it. That's where sponsors comes in. Trying to get these people stabilized and moved on so they don't end up homeless and camping in Washington Jefferson Park, re-addicted, back you know having mental health issues and committing crimes and, and you know you lose your catalytic converter to one of these people you know how much is that costing society so you know it 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 helps on the front end of homeless issues it helps you know reduce crime you know if we're if we're helping these people stay on a straight and narrow it, it, You know, we need to invest in these systems, and we need you folks that listen to the Bose Nose Show talking to your legislators and asking them questions about the community corrections system and the criminal justice system in Oregon, and is it being adequately funded, and in particular things like parole and probation, treatment courts. You know, those systems have to be functional. I mean there's a whole other side in the enforcement side I could talk about, but this is this is a piece that people don't focus on too much because it's kind of a silent piece unless you're involved in the system. Most people don't even think about parole officers and and what they really do and how that role's changed. I mean, like I said, it used to be tail in jail, and they were more police officer than anything. You know, they all carried guns. They drove cars that looked like cop cars. And, you know, they were mostly going around and, and trying to catch people busting their conditions for parole, you know, drinking alcohol or not showing up to a, an appointment. You know, those various things, you know, hanging out with somebody that has a criminal history they've been told not to hang out with. You know that was that was their function was to catch them doing something bad. Pro officers today are trained in all sorts of therapy and counseling, and they are more counselors than they are. Function is really about um, getting people whole again and helping them get whole. but at the same time, understanding enough about risk to try and manage those people well enough to prevent, you know, harm in, in, in the community. You know, they, they, they serve multiple functions and they, and, you know, I, I don't know if I could be a parole officer. I don't know if I've got the capacity to do it. They have to be trained in, in, in almost every aspect of law enforcement, you know, cause they, they do make arrests which means they got to be ready to do, you know, grapple with somebody, get cussed on them, use a taser, maybe even use their service weapon, you know, make those decisions, understand all that. And at the same time, they've got to be able to assist somebody with cognitive behavioral therapy or at least understand um, trauma-informed care. If they're, you know, because quite often a lot of people coming out of, Prison system have also been victims, particularly women that are involved in the criminal justice system have, have been highly victimized over their life and have lots of trauma they they're dealing with. So that's you know all these things we put on the our our community correction system, Um but it it just it needs advocates. It's been kind of a silent piece of the criminal justice system for so long, and we just need people to speak up to their legislators and say, you know, are you aware of, you know, the Community Corrections Act funding and how it's fallen behind? Are you aware that, you know, treatment courts across the state are, a lot of them are, are not financially stable, and they 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 could serve more people if they were and and maybe even had additional funding, you know, and how small a piece of the overall state budget this is. And, you know, for those folks, you know, like, well, how we know the money's being spent well and all that, it's also one of the most highly outcome reported systems the state has. I mean, I don't know how much money the state puts into Um, education and how much it puts into homeless activities, but the actual outcome reporting back to state government, how detailed is that? Other than maybe graduation rates and attendance and, and dropout rates, a few things like that in education. But in the homeless situation, they getting reports back of how many people have actually been moved into permanent housing with the millions of dollars being spent how many people are actually permanently off the street and stayed off the street. We have to report recidivism rates back to the state. We have to, as a system, are required to use evidence-based practices. Everything we do is, is tried and tested and gone through You know, this control test. We're doing something new. We're required to track it and track the results of it. We have to write a community corrections plan for Lane County every two years and submit it to the state. And then they audit that. And if we make any changes in our funding structures or programs, we have to report that change and request an amendment to our plan. And they keep track of that. The folks at DOC monitor our plan. So, it is a highly you know uh, looked after set of funds you know if if you're concerned about advocating for it and you're worried that money's not being spent well, we have to use these evidence based systems. We have to use and report back outcomes. you know unlike a lot of money that goes out of state hands where you just don't understand you know, how it's being spent and whether it's being spent effectively. We're required to report on all that, more so than almost any other funding stream the state puts out. So please, you know, if, you know, as citizens, when you have the opportunity to talk to a state legislature, ask them about community corrections. Ask them if they're funding the parole functions adequately. They're funding things like treatment courts adequately. And if they really understand it, ask them and if they if they're not really aware of the system, ask them to contact their local county commissioner or you know their county uh, parole office and ask for a tour and ask to meet, you know, understand, go to the local public safety coordinating council, which was required to be formed under Senate Bill eleven forty five, one of those one of those strings and one of the the checks and balances of this was they wanted us to work as a system and they required these local public safety coordinating councils to be formed cross-jurisdictional, so we were all talking. And Lane County's Public Safety Coordinating Council includes representation from the Sheriff's Office, the DA's Office, EPD, the City of Eugene, the City of Springfield, Lane County, Parole and Probation, our, our mental health folks, uh, our our Lane County um, Health and Human Services Department. We even have seat, a seat reserved for a small community that what Florence is currently sitting in that that seat. Um, the uh, county, the city administrator for Florence sits in that seat. Um, you know, and we all get together every two months. TO TALK ABOUT THIS this COMMUNITY CORRECTION SYSTEM AND COORDINATION BETWEEN SYSTEMS. OSP COMES TO THOSE MEETINGS. THE, the STATE um, COURT SYSTEM FOLKS COMES. WE GET A JUDGE, USUALLY THE PRESIDING JUDGE OF THE LANE COUNTY CIRCUIT COURT COMES TO THOSE MEETINGS. SO WE CAN ALL TALK TOGETHER AND MAKE SURE THE SYSTEM'S WORKING IN A COORDINATED FASHION. WHERE ELSE IS THAT REQUIRED? <laughs> DO WE HAVE EVERY agency involved in dealing with a homeless meeting on, on a regular basis and are they required to use evidence-based practices or are they required to report outcomes that are they required to write a plan and have that plan reviewed by the state in order to maintain their funding i don't think so this is really a good program and a, a well-managed program, and one I think folks in Lane County here can be proud of. We're doing innovative work. I can't tell you how much our, um, our relationship with nonprofits like sponsors has moved, uh, moved the needle here in Lane County uh, in really changing people's lives post-involvement with the criminal justice system. And that's just, you know, I, I just hope folks, you know, have been, I know it, I've kind of spent my entire show on this now, have <laughs> um, learned something about, you know, a service that's provided by the counties, funded by the state in partnership, and is so critical yet is such a small cost in the overall scheme of things in the state budget. I can't remember what the last buy-in's budget was, 60, 80 billion, 230 million. Less than a quarter billion, if you wanna look at it that way. And it would only take making that maybe 260 million or 280 to really kind of keep the system at least up to speed and if you really wanted to make the system robust and really moving ahead, maybe $300 million or $350, that's still tiny compared to the overall state budget. I'm going to take a deep breath and, re- and remember the fact that this is a call-in show. And I've been forgetting to, to note that and give you guys the call-in number, 646. 646- is the number. Again, 646-721-9887. And we don't have to talk about community corrections and probation and justice reinvestment. We can talk about anything you want to talk about here on the Bo's Nose Show. Uh, You know, there's all sorts of stuff going on in the news. Um, You know, now we're talking about a popcorn shortage potentially. (laughs) Have you heard that one? Um, and, you know, in the midst of all of this, the state of Oregon is considering banning certain diesel trucks from the state. Now, mind you, I've mentioned this before, the state of California did something similar, and it's one of the reasons why they can't get the containers off the docks in the port of Oakland and and other California ports, where most of our freight moves into this country from Asia. In fact, they're now kind of going through the Panama Canal and, and coming to Texas and, and other ports where they can get trucks. But the state of California adopted that rule several years ago, and older certain older trucks are not allowed in the state. They're not legally allowed to operate within the state of California. And it's kind of a silly thing because those trucks are aging out of the fleet anyway. The regulations for truck emissions gradually changed over the early 2000s. And by 2008, you could not buy a truck that did not have the emissions controls they require today. So you have to have a truck that's more than 14 years old. But trucks last a long time. (laughs) Generally, you know, they're designed to run for 20 years with maintenance and all that, if not longer. So you're losing part of the fleet when you pass these rules. But it's not the biggest issue when it comes to these kind of the pollutants they generate, particularly here in Oregon, because the pollutants they're concerned about from diesel engines is Particulate matter less than two and a half microns, which is referred to as PM2.5, which is bad for you because those very small particulate matter can get deep into your lungs. And what they call polyaromatic hydrocarbons, which I won't get into the chemistry, the biochemistry of that, but um, those polyaromatic hydrocarbons are carcinogenic. And are usually part of that PM2.5 because it basically comes from partially burnt contaminants in the diesel fuel. Those are the two big issues for those. Do you know what the largest creator of PM2.5 and PAHs is in Oregon by a significant significant amount in our airshed? Like two-thirds to three-quarters of the total pollution load? Wildfires. So if you manage our forests, maybe, and stop fires early, harvest, do other things, prevent forest fires, maybe that will deal with those two pollutant issues. You know what the second is? Your home wood burning. Whether it's in a wood stove or a fireplace, that is the second largest and it's about a third of our pollution loads. That's, that's like ninety percent between the two of those. So diesel engines are, are minor and it's really not even one of the worst things in Oregon as far as there's only occasions where we we have people going into red days four PM 25 which generally also means PAHs are getting up there. And it's usually in communities that deal with inversions like Oak Ridge, sometimes Portland, and other places in the Willamette Valley deal with inversions. But it's just, it's not a, our biggest pollution issue. But, you know, what it basically comes down to is diesel bad it makes a great soundbite for a politician to say, I'm against diesel pollution. I'm going to ban these trucks. Now, remember that we talked about that inflation thing a few minutes ago? (laughs) How many farmers do you think have trucks older than 14 years old? And a lot of these bans, proposed legislation, includes off-road diesel engines like bulldozers for construction companies and equipment for logging companies and farm equipment and, you know, construction and road equipment for your local county roads department. Think that might, you know, replacing that portion of the elderly portion of fleet in advance of when you were planning to might cost local government and the rest of our economy, a lot of money. I think it might add to our whole issues. And then if we remove that portion of the trucks from our fleet in Oregon, are we going to be starting to see, you know, not only baby formula and popcorn shortages, but others, we're gonna get back to hoarding toilet paper here in Oregon? Doesn't make a lot of sense policy-wise when you're having the problem get cured anyway by time as these trucks and engines age out and they can't be replaced with something that doesn't have the pollution controls on it. And it's not the major source of that pollution in the first place because we have been dealing with it. And it's been, you know, that, portion from diesel engines has been being reduced, PM25 and PAHs for years, since those engines started coming into being and the fleet slowly started being replaced. as new portions out and old goes offline. A soundbite is easier and when it's being pushed by radical environmentalists who really don't care. And maybe their end game is to push inflation to the point where it collapses our economy. I kind of wonder sometimes because it sure seems that that seems to be the end game for a lot of these these policies is how can we collapse the economy and society in some way inadequately funding community corrections could be a start In that you know let's, let's get back to tail and jail i see robin wants to jump in here she probably wants to talk about diesel trucks having driven oh. trucks Actually, I was just going to say that according to Biden's Build Back Better, uh, you can rest assured that they are looking at passing a bill so that they will not have a methane emissions tax on cows, otherwise known as the cow fart tax. Yeah, yeah. Uh, don't get me started. Well, the thing is, is that not only would the farmers have to if they. If it was to go into effect, not only would the farmers have to pay a penalty, but can you figure out how to connect the catalytic converter? Yeah, especially seeing most of the methane, cows actually um, disseminate is not from the rear end, it actually comes from Belgium. So, yeah, it, yeah. what I never understand about some of the climate action folks is that they all want to say, oh, it's got to follow science and all that stuff. And, and I always ask them this question. If methane's such an issue with greenhouse gas generation? Because it's supposedly so much worse than, than CO2. And they they can give you facts and figures that CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere are increasing, but they I never hear methane numbers. They only just talk about you know, leakage from natural gas systems and cows. You know, that's two big things. I ask them these couple questions. Do you know how much methane a wetland generates annually per acre? It's a really large amount. Do you know how many acres of wetlands have been destroyed over the last 200 years in the United States alone? Because we had to pass a law back in the 80s to preserve wetlands. You have to get a permit to fill in a wetland now, right? you got to go through the Army Corps of Engineers and all that stuff. And we are still converting wetlands to dry land in this country. And no one's doing the math of, of, you know, how much methane we stopped production of by covering up wetlands. Versus how much we're creating with our herds of cows, let alone the fact that we went from herds of buffalo that used to blacken the plains to now herds of cows in ranches. I, you know, maybe buffaloes don't generate quite as much methane as bovine. It's a little bit different animal, but there's, you know, they still generate some. <laughs> you know, so it's just. It, and then when you start thinking about worldwide and the amount of wetland destruction worldwide has been phenomenal by mankind. No one balances that. Oh, well, I'm starting to hear the music in the background. So it's probably time to wrap up another edition of the Bo's nose show. We'll be back next week at our usual time. We'll have had a board meeting by then. So, you know, you're not safe next week uh, from County laws. Um, and we'll just try and still have some good news maybe just because i gotta stay on the upbeat side so thank you for listening and uh have a great week